0: Hello again, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Kid Kong at the Movies. I am once again your host, Kid Kong. Well, over the last couple of weeks, we kind of went on an unexpected three-part combat sports, sports entertainment kind of kind of review streak. I didn't intend on it going that direction. I just, folks, I don't really plan out too terribly far which movies I'm going to do. I have a movie here and there that I plan like... I do plan on doing the, the Hobbit trilogy as well as the Rankin-Bass Hobbit film, amongst others. But I don't have like a, a strict guideline of what I'm going to be doing every single time. I kind of plan these out as I go. And I wanted to do The Wrestler. And while I was researching for The Wrestler, looking into Darren Aronofsky led me to The Fighter because I didn't realize he was attached to that as well. So I went ahead and went with that. And then going further through that, I found there were some parallels with another movie, And I decided, you know what, I'm just going to go ahead and do that as well. So I've unintentionally done a trilogy of sorts. So today we're going to complete that with the 2011 film Warrior. Directed by Gavin O'Connor, who's actually, in addition to being the director, was also a producer. And worked on the writing of this as well. Gavin O'Connor is known for the movies Pride and Glory. uh, The most more recent one, The Accountant. And one of my personal favorite movies, period. Miracle about the U.S. hockey team. If you're not a hockey fan, you will still find a reason to love this movie. A close friend of mine who does his own podcast show, you might have checked out his show, I honestly don't know, called uh, Kaiju Carnage, a King Kong and Godzilla podcast, is also, like myself, a lifelong hockey fan, and it's one of his favorite movies as well. So I will probably eventually cover that movie at some point. But yeah, Gavin O'Connor, the director of Warrior, also directed that. The other producer that was of note for this is Jordan Schur, who I I found a lot of information on this man, and most of it has little to nothing to do with his production credits. The only thing I found on there of real interest to me was that he's the former president of Geffen Records and the founder of Flip Records as well. Geffen Records, of course, is very well known in the musical industry. Gavin O'Connor, as I said, was one of the writers. Another one of the writers on this project was Cliff Dorfman who's probably best known for writing the the series Entourage. Entourage, as you know, was partially based on Mark Wahlberg's career through Hollywood. Hence how I got to there from The Fighter. I don't know if any of you have seen The War. Basically, it's a movie about two brothers, they're estranged, who, through a stroke of, call it luck, call it fate, call it what you will, find themselves both entered in the same mixed martial arts tournament where the winner is going to be getting a million dollars and will be proclaimed the best middleweight fighter in the world. One of them seeks out their estranged father, who is a sober man who's been sober for over a thousand days at this point, to train him for said tournament, while the other brother is choosing to do this because his job as a teacher, he fights underground, he's found out about that, he's put on temporary leave, he needs to make money, he starts doing little shows all over the New England area, and eventually, when the bank is going to take away their home, he gets his coach to enter him in this tournament to take the place of somebody else. And of course, they're brothers, they're estranged, they eventually find one another in the tournament. It's a fantastic, fantastic movie. Uh, it was produced on a relatively modest budget of $25 million, and while it only made back $23 million worldwide. As far as critical success goes, I mean, this damn near top as top can be i mean nick nolte who pl- who plays the father in this movie he got an oscar nomination for best supporting actor in this film which that's that's astounding you don't really see that and a lot of, this was part of a series of movies that you saw in the early to, in the late 2000s early 2010s that had a lot of really really crappy mixed martial arts themed movies and it kind of got lost in the shuffle during that which is a shame because unlike those this one is not It doesn't go for the cheesy route. It's a fantastic movie, and I greatly enjoy it. Brendan Conlon, the the older of the two brothers, was played by Joel Edgerton. Now, Joel Edgerton has had a pretty... I'm not going to say he's had a long Hollywood career, because he hasn't. He was a relative unknown to some circles when he took this role. Uh, Previously to this, he had appeared in the Star Wars prequel trilogy as Owen Lars, who is Luke Skywalker's uncle that he ends up living with on Tatooine. He played Sir Gawain in King Arthur. Uh, He was in the owl movie, Legends of the Guardians, The Owls of Gahul, which is a fantastic book series and honestly would have been better suited to be made a television series of some sort out of rather than a movie. Who knows? Netflix always needs something to do. Uh, He was also in the remake of The Thing, Zero Dark Thirty, and he played the pharaoh in Exodus, Gods and Kings, opposite Christian Bale, who played Moses. The younger brother, Tommy Reardon, that's Tommy Reardon Conlon, but we'll get to that, was played by Tom Hardy. Now, Tom Hardy's first theatrical role was in Black Hawk Town. Since that point, he has been in such films as Rock and Rolla, Bronson, Inception. He played Bane in The Dark Knight Rises. He was in Lawless, Mad Max: Fury Road, The Revenant, and he's currently playing Eddie Brock in Venom. He's also had his one of his bigger breaks is in the HBO series Band of Brothers. Their father, Paddy Conlon, is played by Nick Nolte. I mentioned him a minute ago. He's of course from he was in North Dallas Forty. 48 Hours, and another 48 Hours opposite Eddie Murphy. The remake of Cape Fear. He was in the Thin Red Line. Tropic Thunder. Noah. uh, He played Bruce Banner's estranged father in the Ang Lee 2003 film Hulk. He was also in Angel Has Fallen. Brandon Conlon's wife, Tess Conlon is played by Jennifer Morrison, who, while she has been in a couple of movies of note, like Mr. and Mrs. Smith, and she was also in the Star Trek series. Now, that's the 2009 Star Trek, Star Trek Beyond, and Star Trek... Uh, Into Darkness, all those She played Kirk's mother in those movies However, she's probably best known for television roles On House, where she was uh, Dr. Cameron for seasons 1 through 6 And she was also in How I Met Your Mother for a period of time Now, Brandon Conlon's trainer Frank Campana is played by Frank Grillo Who Frank Grillo is known for Minority Report, Edge of Darkness He was in The Grey, he's appeared in the Purge series of movies And he's also appeared in the MCU as Brock Rumlow, a.k.a. Crossbones The principal I mentioned earlier that was uh, the Brendan Conlon character's boss at the school, Principal Joe Zito, is played by Kevin Dunn. Now, Kevin Dunn's a character actor who you've probably seen him in a movie and you don't realize that's who I'm talking about. So I'm going to give you a couple of examples. He was in 98 Godzilla where he played the uh, military general Hicks. Now, if you want an excellent podcast on that, I again implore you to seek out the Kaiju Carnage podcast series. They did an episode of the 1998 Godzilla film. Excellent episode full of a lot of information that I did not know. He was also in Small Soldiers where he played the boy's father. Uh, He was on television series Veep where he played the White House Chief of Staff. Probably the best one I can give you where you will know exactly who I'm talking about just from hearing this. He was in the Michael Bay Transformers series where he played Sam Witwicky. That's Shia LaBeouf's character. He played his father in that movie. That is probably the one that you're going to recognize him from the most. In addition to that, Noah Emmerich, who was in the movies The Truman Show, where he played Truman's childhood best friend, as well as the movie Miracle, appears as a loan mortgage officer type thing in the scene with the bank involving Brendan Conlon. Uh, Maximiliano Hernandez, who is probably best known for the MCU where he played Jasper Sitwell, was Colt Boyd, who is the gym owner, who ultimately ends up being the quote-unquote trainer for Tommy. Now, I say quote-unquote trainer for Tommy. He's not really his trainer. He just has his name attached to him because he's the one who got him into the tournament. Now, multiple mixed martial artists actually appear as fictional fighters in this world, including Eric Apple, who plays the predominant rival for Tommy Reardon in the gym, Mad Dog Grimes. Uh, Nate Marquardt appears, as does Anthony Rumble Johnson and Juan Carnero. Now, Juan Carnero, of those four names, was the one who probably had the least amount of prior exposure and benefited the most from this because he ended up going on a little bit of a tear after this fight, or after this movie, rather, that he was in, and eventually earned his way back into the UFC after years of being out of it. We also got Kurt Angle who while you're going to recognize his name probably from the World Wrestling Entertainment or Total Nonstop Action Impact Wrestling, Kurt Angle was actually the 1996 Olympic gold medalist wrestler. Fun fact, I can name you gold medal, silver medal and bronze medal winners at most Olympic games from 1960 onward. I'm a nerd. He appears as a fearsome Russian character named Koba, which I got to assume was a fictionalized version of a millionenko Fedor for this movie. The surviving members of the Tap Out crew also appear to themselves. Now, I say surviving members because Punk Ass and Skyscrape are still alive. Uh, Mask, unfortunately, died in a car wreck in 2008. So he was, of course, not going to be able to be in this film. The director himself, Gavin O'Connor, cameoed as the man who organized the whole tournament, J.J. Riley. You also get a few personalities who appear as themselves briefly on, like, television broadcasts about mixed martial arts, including Brian Callen, Rashad Evans. And I want to say Joe Rogan is briefly on screen, but I don't know if he has any actual dialect. Now, when it came time for the actual production and writing, the studio allowed a great bit of creative freedom for both the writing and the filming, while not exactly allowing a whole lot of financial aid, if that makes sense. I mean, they... They basically told him that you know write the story that you want to write and scout your locations, but you keep it kind of simple. Now the idea for the two, the whole two strange brothers brought back together by violence and everything. The director brought a lot of this actually out of his own personal life experience because he and his he and his brother had a similar situation where their parents got divorced. One stayed with the father, one left and went with the mother. They had a lot of acrimony involved in that and eventually found their way back to each other and were able to reconcile at some point. Another writer involved in this was Anthony Timbakis. I'm sorry. He, uh... He wanted to use mixed martial arts because... And they could have used... He said they could have used boxing. They could have used wrestling. They could have used all kinds of different things. But he wanted to use mixed martial arts because while it was a relatively newer medium... it, Like I said earlier on in, the, in this episode... Uh, it was really being used for a lot of really bad directed DVD films. Like really, really bad ones. Usually starring Hector Echevarria. Uh, and he felt that, you know... There's an untapped well here that we can really get into. And that's what he wanted to do. You know, so, initially, like I said, it was written to take place in Long Beach. And Patty, the father, was going to be working down at the docks. Lionsgate, who was the distributor for this, decided that that was not a great idea because they weren't going to be putting up a whole lot of money for this situation. So, they suggested to Gavin O'Connor that he try and find other locations. He scouted himself and eventually, you know, he just fell in love with Pennsylvania and specifically Pittsburgh. Because Pittsburgh is, it really exemplifies working class, family, people that have to struggle to get what they need to get. Plus, it doesn't hurt that Pennsylvania has another one of those tax laws like what Massachusetts had for the fighters, to pick up quite a bit of slack on the finance. They were only given six weeks to prepare for this film. Now, when I say six weeks to prepare, I mean six weeks total to film this movie. On a limited budget. Because of that, Gavin O'Connor after meeting with the crew and getting their okay on this, decided that they would also use the weekends, which typically speaking, a lot of Hollywood productions give their actors Saturdays and Sundays off to kind of try to recover. But by doing this, they were able to get an additional 12 days, so almost two whole weeks out of this. Uh, in addition to that, O'Connor's cameraman and head of photography, I only remember his first name, I'm sorry, is Masabetsu, or Masabotsu. If I butcher that pronunciation, I am terribly sorry. Helped a lot. Like he helped with the storyboarding. He helped coordinate between vans to get people to where they needed to get. Like he he was he was very very helpful. And Gavin O'Connor has said on numerous occasions how thankful he was for that man to be helping him. They affectionately called him Moss. Now when it came time for casting. Gavin O'Connor when he did Miracle. With Miracle, he specifically took hockey players for the most part and taught them how to act because he felt that it would be much easier to do that than it would ever be to take actors and try and teach them how to skate and how to play hockey in any way, shape, or form. Even if they were going to be doubles most of the time, he felt that it would just be easier to do it that way. With Warrior, because of the amount of -of out-of-cage story and drama that you get with this, they had to use real actors, which made it much more difficult for them to go forward with this because they needed to find actors that could not only pull off the range and the out of, out of the cage shenanigans, the emotion, the drama, the relationships that needed to be shown. Not only that, but he needed to find actors that could also look, be believably tough looking in that ring and look like they belong in that cage. So, I mean, they needed, mainly for that, they needed the two brothers to be cast on that. As far as how long it took, I mean, according to Gavin O'Connor, they saw thousands of people for both Tommy Reardon and Brendan Collin. Over a thousand people to try and figure out who, would, and it would always be, well, this guy's really good at the out of cage stuff, but we can't really. He doesn't really make a believable in cage Like He doesn't have that edge. He doesn't have that roughness to him. Or this guy is—he looks like a badass. He looks like he's perfectly suited for caged unarmed combat. But he flubs over his own lines and has the emotional range of a tea kettle. So, finally, Tom Hardy auditioned for the role. And when I say he auditioned for the role, I mean that they saw him in the film Bronson and liked that and felt that that's something we could possibly do. So Gavin O'Connor contacted Tom Hardy and offered him the role. Now, initially, Hardy felt that he wasn't going to be able to do it between the physicality, having to learn an American accent for the role, the cultural differences, all that. He was really concerned that he would not be able to do that right. However, Gavin O'Connor was able to convince him to come and stay with him for a week, and they worked together to try and hash out what they were and weren't going to do. And he was able to study various tapes and various little documentaries about the Pittsburgh area, and also about the Pacific Northwest area, because when... Their parents divorce in the movie. He has this point in the scene where he says, it wasn't enough that we drove all the way to the ocean to get away from you, but once we got as far as we could west, we went north as well, implying that he moved all the way up to Washington State. Uh, Joel Edgerton was felt to be the perfect, perfect embodiment. Now, again, this was over a 1,000 people they interviewed for the to- Brandon Connelly character as well. Edgerton was found to be perfect for it because he embodied both he has the family man aspect as well as looking like he could you know, defend himself in the cage. He had a, he had a roughness, a toughness to him, like almost a, a that glint in someone's eye when you know, like okay, uh, what's the phrase from that movie? I believe it's in Gran Torino where Clint Eastwood says you ever, every once in a while, you ever mess with someone that you get that feeling you should have never messed with them? That's the kind of thing that they felt that Joel Edgerton had. In addition to that, he had an actual martial arts background having done Kyokushin Karate for 10 years now granted he hadn't done it since he was 17 but in addition to that he also was a surfer for a while and his brother was a professional stuntman out of Australia so he had that physical aspect to him that was believable and viable on that Nick Nolte there was never another choice the writers and directors literally grew up loving Nick Nolte and the character of Patty Conlon was written with Nolte in mind No one else. He liked the character. He liked the story. And he actually was able to draw comparisons to his own personal life, his own personal struggles, issues with children, family in general, alcoholism, things like that. And it was almost intimidating, his presence, to some of the other actors in there. Because this is a a major, major name of an actor for this film. And like, to know that that's who it was like they, they felt a little, a little like not necessarily cowed by him but Nick Nolte and this is a lot of people have talked about this he almost has like a palpable connection to his inner darkness that we all have in some aspect like so, you mess with the wrong person they can go to that dark place like he he has that like you can see it in him and he embodied that. He was 100% committed to the role, whether they were filming or not filming. He did everything in his power for that role. He was fantastic. When it came time to cast Tess, who was Brendan's wife, Jennifer Morrison was the third person to read for the role. And immediately, O'Connor and them knew, she's Tess. That's it. We, we, we found Tess. It, there's no two ways about it. That's It's absolutely, yeah, we got it. We got it. And unfortunately for them, because they'd already committed to a whole day's worth of auditions, they had to go through that whole day. Now they didn't push it past that. They're like, we're just not going to schedule anybody or call anybody back for tomorrow or anything like that. But still, it, it's got to be kind of difficult to let somebody read for a role when you've already decided, I already know who's going to be in this role. So, and of course, Frank Grillo was again, the only choice for, the role of Frank, who was Brendan's trainer in the film. He had known Yavin O'Connor for 12 years. He's a purple belt Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and he is a former Golden Gloves boxing champion. He was, like, the, the role of Frank was written with him in mind. Now, to aid with his performance on this, Frank Grillo went to New Mexico and practically lived At Jackson Winklejohn, Mixed Martial Arts, to learn from Greg Jackson in order to act like him, to to embody that trainer sphere. For those of you that don't know, for a very long time, Greg Jackson was considered one of the top, top head coaches in all of Mixed Martial Arts. At one point, they had multiple guys who were not only world champions in the UFC, but in other promotions. They had top five guys, they had top two guys, all within the same divisions. Greg Jackson is A lot of people call him like a Yoda or like an absolute guru when it comes to mixed martial arts and event. Not only did he move down there to be around him, but Frank actually ended up taking Joel Edgerton with him to Jackson's at one point in order to kind of build that repartee, that, that connection, that understanding, that trust and that believable relationship between a trainer and their fighter, you know, Greg Jackson gave them the idea for the classical music because Greg Jackson's gym, in his office, he's got quotes from all kinds of Middle Eastern philosophers and all kinds of things just randomly stuck up in there. And he gave them the idea that, you know, you're following the music. The music is what keeps you calm. And that's something that Frank says, we listen to the music. We don't strike with no rhythm. We strike, there's a purpose for what we do, a beautiful purpose to everything, kind of like what the music was. And, I mean, they he... Frank Grillo can't speak highly enough of Greg Jackson because he learned so much from the man just watching him interact with the fighters stepping into like a coaching role with George and like Greg Jackson would be like okay so if Brendan is fighting in this spot and he needs this advice how would you word it to him and he'd be like I'd tell him okay as soon as this round starts i need you to fake with the left kick him in the head and you need to immediately get this guy on the ground and Frank would would take that and do that so I, it was it was a it was a good decision, even if he had to do it on his own dime. Now, as far as the actual fight camp, and that's what they called this. <laughs> Edgerton and Hardy worked out eight hours a day for two months. They lived like fighters. They ate like fighters. They trained like fighters. Tom Hardy especially showed up, and he was only about 165 pounds. They are like, look, we, we need you to be bigger than this. Like, you gotta, you gotta work at it. So he had to work to gain nearly 30 pounds of muscle for the role. I mean, his, his workout for that included two hours every day each of boxing, kickboxing, choreography, and weights. He was eating six to eight times a day, working out every single day. He was, he said, I don't, in an interview, he said, I don't understand why anybody would want to do this for a living. It's nothing but plain chicken, broccoli, you know, stuff that's just, straight up feeding your muscles and not feeding your palate. There's not not even any candy, which as a as a written, he he loves the sweets. He, <laughs> he loves sweets. Uh, as far as Joel Edgerton went, because of his prior experience with martial arts, as well as being a surfer and everything, it wasn't that difficult for him to get in shape. And ultimately, throughout fight camp, they realized, you know, he's he's a better he would be a better fighter than Tom Hardy would be, which reflects itself in the movie when you get their fight scenes that they do, the various cage fights. While Brendan's fights tend to last longer, going multiple rounds and involving technique and everything, Tommy's fights are much shorter. And that's because Tom Hardy was not as good as George. And that's not to say that he can't take care of himself. Cause I'm sure after doing that for three months, he could probably take care of himself pretty well, but it was just easier for Tom Hardy at this point. I mean, for uh, Joel Edgerton at this point. I'm sorry. I mean, they had... Like I said, they brought in real fighters for this. Not just just that they bring in real fighters that acted as fight doubles for Edgerton and Hardy because there were quite a few scenes involved where they weren't actually fighting each other, but they brought in real fighters and real high-end athletes for this kind of stuff. Like, and in order to bring them in for this... They had to teach these fighters essentially to kind of take their foot off the pedal a little bit so that they weren't hurting the actors. Specifically na- uh, named on that was Anthony Rumble Johnson and Kurt Angle. And I can understand that because they said that when they walked in the in the room while Johnson was sitting there hitting the pads, like it sounded like shotguns going off when he would hit the pads. If you've ever seen Rumble fight, you understand that statement. And Kurt Angle is just a naturally intense person. They were concerned that, you know... You get these guys in a cage with a real referee with a crowd-type scenario and the bell rings. What happens if instinct kicks in? So, I mean, they had to basically train the fighters to come across as stuntmen. Coincidentally, Nate Marquardt's career went down the toilet after he was in this movie. I'm not making any kind of comparison here, but if you teach a real fighter to pull his shots to that extent, I hope it didn't actually happen to him in his real fights. That's all i got to say. But... I mean, it was even with all that being said, all the training they went through and everything, it was still brutal. I mean, Joel Edgerton tore his meniscus at one point. Tom Hardy cracked a rib and broke his foot. And there were several points in time during the filming process where they were concerned that the film was not going to actually end up getting made because their main actors were were hurt. They couldn't use them. So they would try and film everything else but those scenes and had to hope that the guy would be better enough in time to do it. I mean, Gavin O'Connor was, you know, he was very accommodating to the fighters and the real ref, which was a real ref, Josh Rosenthal, that he brought in asking him all kinds of questions, if something looked good, if something looked bad. But he literally worked every single day of production, not just as a director. I mean, the guy was still scouting locations while they were filming. He didn't watch any of the footage until the film was almost done. And by the time that was all done, he had shot nearly a million feet worth of film. And it wasn't like, okay, well, this is bad, we can cut this out, or this is bad, we can cut this out. Every single bit of that, he said, was usable. He's like, we had enough material there that we really could have made this a multi-part movie if we wanted to. But we had to try and cut it down a little bit. I mean, I could could keep going on and on. There's a lot that went into the production of this movie. The only thing I can say is that if you want more information on that than what I'm giving you right now, if you have access to Warrior on DVD, they do include a documentary uh, thing on it. It's about 25 minutes long, and it includes some of this information. Um, I mean, you look at the movie. The movie itself is a story of redemption. It's a story of rebuilding relationships. I mean, these two brothers have grown up in a household and grown up in a life where violence was a way of life. I mean, if you are from Pennsylvania, you understand how important... Academic wrestling is in Pennsylvania. To put this into perspective, there are frequently, I can name you multiple instances of wrestlers who did not place in state in Pennsylvania and then went on to win an NCAA Division One Championship. While the ones who did place still won NCAA Division One championships. It's an entirely different beast there. And as such, these two brothers growing up in that atmosphere, Tommy becomes a soldier, and I'm not going to go too far in the detail on that because I really don't want to give away aspects of this story. But they kind of have to get to where Brendan has has to hurt his brother to try and bring him back. Like, they have to hurt each other in order to forgive each other. And now that sounds stupid as hell, but that's just... Some situations when it comes to Hollywood, that's just how it goes. I mean, the movie was released on, uh, I'm sorry, in September of 2011. Prior to the movie being released, Lionsgate released a book called We Are All Warriors to try and uh, promote the movie and drum up interest in the movie. It focused on everyday heroes bringing awareness to them and they're just they're not just talking about the everyday heroes like oh a cop or oh a firefighter or oh this like local heroes like people that bring food to homeless shelters and things like that made 13 million in the US roughly and almost 10 million worldwide for a grand total of like I said about 23 million it did do very well on home office on uh, home release rather i think it made like 100 million dollars on home release which is which is much much better it debuted at number 3 behind contagion and the help which that sounds about right Critically speaking, this movie had a lot of praise directed at it. I mean, it was directed at everyone from character development and Tom Hardy, Nick Nolte, the story itself, the fight scenes were deemed as... While at times a little excessive, largely believable. And when I say at times excessive, there are multiple times in his fights where Brendan is just getting absolutely pounded that it honestly, look in a real fight, most of the time the referee is going to step in to stop. I say most of the time because some referees are better than others. I mean, Roger Ebert said this is a rare fight movie where we don't want to see either side really lose, which... That's a statement that can honestly be applied to really only a couple of other movies that come to my mind. I mean, it's it's got a high, it's got a lot of praise. Like I, I can't really speak highly enough of, of this movie. I love this movie. I've watched it multiple times. It's the movie that introduced me to Joel Edgerton. I already knew who Tom Hardy was because of Rock and Rolla, but this movie. Like to me, it put those it put those two actors really much more firmly in a. They're not just like smarmy character actors or anything like that. These are people that can actually act, and in addition to that, pull off a certain physicality. It actually helped Tom Hardy because the weight he gained from this movie and the the physical shape he got himself in paid off with him be, with him being Bane in The Dark Knight Rises. Uh, I could I could go on and on and on about this. It's just... It is what it is. If you haven't seen the movie, I implore you to see it. It does have a couple of remakes, and I, one of them is not the HBO series Warrior, although it has the same name. It has nothing to do with it. The remakes that they produced, there was an Indian remake called Brothers, and there was also a Russian remake, which came out in 2015, that the title of this, when translated from Russian to English, is Warrior, and it has an almost identical plot. But... Here and there, that was Warrior. If I, if you feel like I've left a little bit out of this, it's it's been a, one of those weeks where my brain has just been pulled in several different directions, and I don't ever want to get off schedule with this. So I will probably address other little factoids here and there for Warrior on my Facebook page, which is Kid Kong at the Movies. Now that's Kid Kong with two Ds if you haven't figured that out. Um, next week... So I said last week that next week we would... uh, When I said last week, I'm sorry, that I said after Warrior, we'd be doing one of two things. The actor Showcase is going to have to be pushed back by a couple of weeks. The guest that I was going to have on to talk about it is not going to be available next weekend. So we're probably going to have to put this off not next week, but the week after the next week. So with that being said, the episode that is going to drop on... Not this Sunday, but the following Sunday. We'll be on the 1990, I want to say 96 film. It's time to jam. That's right. It's going to be on Space Jam. And not only am I going to be talking about Space Jam on that, I may actually decide to talk about Space Jam 2 for a minute because that looks like a God Almighty train wreck. Until next week, I am Kid Kong, and I will see you at the movies. Y'all have a good one.